Welcome to the Angelico Project Presents. The Angelico Project is a lay Catholic initiative in Greater Cincinnati, committed to evangelizing souls and transforming the culture by promoting the good, the true, and the beautiful through the arts, thought, and culture. Today's episode is a discussion about poetry and creation featuring Father Jonah Teller, Professor Kevin Campo, and Chris Petter. Without further ado, let's begin. On behalf of the Angelico Project, I'd like to thank all of you for joining us uh, for what uh, promises to be a lively and enjoyable conversation on the subject of poetry and creation. Uh, My name is Chris Petter. I'm a teaching fellow at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and the assistant director of the writing program. Uh, I'm joined today by Professor Kevin Cambo, an assistant professor of philosophy at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. Uh, Hello, Kevin. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Chris. It is a pleasure to be here. We're also joined by uh, Father Jonah Teller, a Dominican priest, uh, friar of the province of St. Joseph. Father Jonah, thank you for joining us. Hello, Chris. Kevin, good to speak with both of you. Uh, So we'll jump right in. The topic today is poetry and creation. There are a few things here that, that are definitely worth exploring. And, and some of those things include what uh, the philosopher Joseph Pieper said was, was essentially at the, at the heart of any kind of engagement with art. That is, that uh, the, the praise of creation is at the essence of art. So I think today we can start this conversation by perhaps asking firstly, what can poetry contribute to our knowledge of creation or, or our relationship with creation? Where, where does poetry come into this? Poetry is one of the prime ways that we can look at nature and articulate what we see to ourselves and, and to others in, as a way towards, uh, yeah, uh, there's a joy to articulating what delights us or what moves us or what troubles us. And so uh, poetry is a discipline, an art that puts a, an intent focus on words and their ability to become little windows into an experience that we have had or ways we've seen uh, some insight in ourselves or in the world or in others. And that uh, poetry is this art that uh, yeah, takes words and tries to follow them and plumb their depths and see how well they can serve as conveyors of uh, those experiences we have. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I really like that. Um, I mean, as I was thinking about the title of the of this conversation, and I thought you know, it would be nice to sort of think about sort of what are the activities of the poet, right? And I think, you know, Father Jonas just said there's the uh, there's the perceiving or the viewing, and then there's the uh, the crafting or composing or whatever. And you have sort of have these two, and already I feel like made of overstep. I mean, it might be one motion. Who knows how many motions yeah. this is? But what? I mean, Chris should get in here and say something about this. But well, I mean, uh, you're, you're just you're, you're, letting us kind of like you know span out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a good uh, I'm, gonna, yeah. I, I, I'm letting y'all set up, set the stage. For me. That's what's happening. Yeah. Right. Kevin, you're pointing out a, a, I think, a very important ambiguity between perceiving and crafting 
I think there's there's a way in which we need to think about these things as as separate parts of poetry, but especially certain poets like like the poet Richard Wilbur, a recent American poet, loves to to yoke these two things together to the point that they're almost inseparable. The the act of seeing and the act of crafting. And yet, you know, for, for the sake of conversation, it would be very helpful for us to to maybe take one at a time, but also see them together. But uh, you're, you're good. Uh, I think I think it's a good move to point out that ambiguous relationship. Um, and and the maybe if you'll allow me, I'll return to Peeper for a second because he uh, harps on the notion of vision in art, and I, I think uh, that that might be a, a some of his words could be very helpful to us. You know, he he acknowledges in his book Only the Lover Sings that man's ability to see is in decline. You know, this would be the middle of the century that he's that he's speaking, and uh, it's probably even more so to to the day. But man's ability to see is in decline, and he points to the arts um, as as ways to to help us see. Uh, and I think to help us see in a couple of ways, both by by reading a poem uh, and and seeing something we had never seen before, to to see in a poem like Wilbur's Mayflies, this this the movement, the the dance of the mayflies together, which you know I personally had never observed before uh, before I read that poem. But there's also a way in which these poems can can train our sight train us to see the world anew to give us spiritual insight uh and and peeper describes this as something absolutely essential to to man as a spiritual being um he says to see things is the first step toward that primordial and basic mental grasping of reality. Uh, and he talks about how being able to see uh, allows for man's and brings out man's essential inner richness. Or if, if we neglect this capacity uh, and, and the threat of not being able to see prevails, it, it brings out man's most abject inner poverty. So, so, He's speaking to poetry's capacity or, or generally capacity to, to help us see and linking that to an inner spiritual richness, which I think is a, is a, is a significant point. Certainly. You know, as it just happens, I do have a copy of Mayflies here. Um, you know, just, it's just kind of here, ready to hand. Uh, really wonderful. What a wonderful coincidence here. And, uh, so I, I, mean, I think yeah, I just feel, I feel moved to read this poem then. If that's all right, that um, b- by all means, Father Jonas, this this I, I think will help us have like a grounds to explore this subject a little more concretely. So go ahead. Sure. This is Mayflies by Richard Wilbur. In somber forest, when the sun was low, I saw from unseen pools a mist of flies in their quadrillions rise and animate a ragged patch of glow with sudden glittering as when a crowd of stars appear through a brief gap in black and driven cloud, one arc of their great round dance showing clear. It was no muddled swarm I witnessed, 
for in entrechats, each fluttering insect there rose two steep yards in air, then slowly floated down to climb once more, so that they all composed a manifold and figured scene, and seemed the weavers of some cloth of gold or the fine pistons of some bright machine. Watching those lifelong dancers of a day as night closed in, I felt myself alone in a life too much my own, more mortal in my separateness than they, unless, I thought, I had been called to be not fly or star, but one whose task is joyfully to see how fair the fiats of the caller are. Lovely. Those last lines uh, really speak to what we're discussing. Uh, his articulation of the poet's task, uh, whose task is joyfully to see how fair the fiats of the collar are. Right. And there, I think that there's a, you made the distinction earlier, Chris, about uh, the danger of separating um, mankind, uh, the human person from uh, nature, from the whole ecosystem. Because if you do that, uh, nature itself suffers a great impoverishment because uh, man, the human person, is the one part of creation of physical creation that can see and express what he sees. So a mayfly is just going to be a little fly that goes up and down for about 24 hours and then dies. But Richard Wilbur or any human person, anyone going for a walk in the woods, they have the natural God-given ability to look and see that, and then from that uh, sight to draw some larger truth or insight about themselves and the world. And if they do that, the world is enriched. And so, again, it's important that you have this whole unity of nature with the human person there uh, at the heart of it as the one who can see. Yeah. Um, when I had your remarkable reading of this poem, uh, one idea that came, uh, just sort of going off this idea, is so you have, right, man as this subject who's been called to see, right, called, mm -hmm. to, called to vision. And, but then there's also us as the, so, so yeah, the poet is there as the one who's doing the initial vision. And right. then he's teaching us to see. So mm -hmm. in a way, <laughs> vision is both the condition and the fruit of poetry. Um, and yeah. so, and it's fantastic. And right, and then creation is right there yeah. uh, in, in, amidst this, both activities. I mean, right, both because then we, can, we can sit here and think, or maybe someone's listening to the, the podcast. I hope someone's listening to the podcast. <laughs> um, but they're sitting and thinking, well, that's all very well and good uh, to talk about poetry being a way of seeing the world and expressing it. But I don't have any ability to do that. But that's the great thing about poetry and any art is that uh, Wilbur, for example, is sharing with us his yep. own sight, his own vision, so that we yep. can have it. And we don't have to worry about waiting for some personal insight. We can share yep. with the work that others have done. And that's the beauty also of art as an enduring mode of human sharing. So I'm going to commit a cardinal sin and say, so, Chris, what's the meaning of the poem? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to pretend you didn't say that. Yeah, and I'm going to keep in... pushing through what I was now, about to say, say anyway. five paragraphs, please, that would be very useful. Um, I mean, you're but... the head of the writing center, for Pete's sake. Well, what's it mean? 
<clears throat> hey, uh, the assistant director of the writing oh. program. Thank you. Exactly. That's uh, what I said, more or less. The, uh, I mean, Kevin, I, I mean, I think you saw one very important implicit quality here that the the poet's vision is transferred to us, is given to us through the poem. Uh, you, you also mentioned earlier the relationship between perceiving and crafting. And I think there's another implicit thing here uh, about the, the craft implied in the act of vision. So when he articulates the poet's role here in these last two lines, one whose task is joyfully to see how fair the fiats of the color are, he's speaking in terms of vision, not in terms of craft. But I think throughout the poem, we see implicit the the, the craft of the poet. And the, the crafting, which I propose is part of the act of seeing. So we can see that in a few things. Firstly, when he's looking at the mayflies, he identifies through metaphor these motions. Of, he describes these motions of the mayflies. Uh, they seemed the weavers of some cloth of gold or the fine pistons of some bright machine. I think it'd be fair to say that there's an act of, of crafting in the act of metaphor there, the act of creating what seems to us just appearance, perhaps seems to us unordered appearance, and, and giving that the structure of order through metaphor. I mean, I think that would be the first implicit act of crafting in what he explicitly calls the poet's act of vision. Uh, another thing which is hard to hear from just a reading of this poem but the poem itself is structured uh, into three rather intricate stanzas. You didn't hear and, me with the stanza pauses? <laughs> Those breaths. Uh, yeah, that's a, Superlative. I mean, you see the ears to hear, Chris, but sure, explain <laughs> it to me again. Please. Perhaps perhaps my ear is not yet well-trained enough. There you and go. There, yeah. but, like Greg uh, Smaltrum, you need spiritual ears. You're too sinful to see it. <laughs> uh, beautiful. Well, had I spirit, had I the ears to see, you know, <laughs> I, I would, you know, be able to to recognize this part of the craft too, which I think is perfect, purposefully silent. Uh, it's it's purposefully, you know, it's not rhyming couplets where the the rhymes ring and the rhythms really, you know, gallop. Uh, there there is a very silent craft here. But a craft, I'm trying to say, is, is implicit, yet very important to, to the act of perceiving. Uh, and I think in, in the grand scheme is part of Richard Wilbur's way of really uh, allying the two, uh, allying perception with poetic craft, even though they are distinct, allying them in really helpful ways. Sure. This is going to be such a particular point, but when I was considering the poem, uh, and the jump from weavers of some cloth of gold, I thought, beautiful, lovely. Mm -hmm. And then we got pistons of some bright machine. Yes, and I thought, here we, are, here we are in the forest, pistons of some bright machine. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, uh, it's an incredible contrast. Yeah. Um, I didn't know what to make of it, but it, it was striking. I yeah. mean, it was just like, bam. <laughs> because both, I mean, weavers, that's still, uh, he's moving into technology. like a Yeah, exactly, is, right. But then to go from like a you know a, a loom which is much more 
on organic, organic just a soft it's a soft image yeah then you go to pistons firing um it's uh yeah it's a real beautiful moment he's in a sense being transparent to that's just it's what he sees but then mm-hmm. there's also this uh sense that uh oh, does that even fit but uh, yeah <laughs> that it's all contained within that one little glimpse of a little shaft of sunlight in a forest uh-huh. and then a whole cloud of gnats kind of going up and down, um, but that he sees it. And this, you know, the great thing about this poem is that, you know, the actual experience could have just taken like one second. Yeah. And that he then um, extends it and goes deeper with it and ends up by having some insight about, uh, you know, the act of God, the creator, that uh, because the final line is that he, he sees how fair the fiats of the caller are. And he's, re- he's referencing then a, uh, the Latin for Genesis 1, when God says, let there be light, the Latin is fiat lux, fiat. And of course, uh, Catholics attuned to uh, the tradition of their faith will know that the fiat is also involved. That comes back with Mary in the Annunciation saying, fiat miki secundum verbum tum, let it be done to me according to thy word. But the first fiat, the primordial fiat, the creating fiat is God's. So that there's not just the poet's vision here, and there's not just our vision that we get by sharing the poet's vision, there's a third vision. And that's the most important one, which is God seeing creation and speaking it into being. So that creation in its most radical sense is an idea of God. But God's ideas are such that they're real. If God thinks it, it is. And we get to see that so that ultimately it's not uh, the poet himself who has to create the the meaning of nature, but he just gets to see deeper and deeper and deeper into the original creating idea of the God who spoke it into being. I, mean, I think, I, I mean, that's that's absolutely right. I, I think quite wonderful to bring out. But I'm wondering, <laughs> is there some? Is there like a yes, there is. There, there is. What? There is one coming. Yeah, I knew it. We're putting okay. a lot of pressure on vision. On mm. the word to see, okay. This is this sure. isn't the way we usually use the word. Uh, I mean, I, I, how do we usually use the word, Chris? Uh, as, <laughs> as, you know, as the sensory perception of of you know what's oh, okay. on the dinner table when I'm hungry, yeah. kind oh, of I thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I I think what we're bringing out is is uh, is there in this poem is is there. In, in what surrounds the poem and in, in a theology of creation. But I'm wondering if, if there are other ways to kind of put this in context by moving away from the word vision. So I'll say straight up is when we say vision like that, are we implying something like contemplation taken in a general sense? Mm. You know, are we <clears throat> implying, um, yeah, contemplation, which, which I articulate as, you know, a mode of seeing that receives and embraces the world maybe simply as it gives itself to go back to uh, jonah your earlier point about creation as gift um when we talk about the vision of the poet are we talking about contemplation i mean my instinct would be and this is going back to your point chris is that uh i mean maybe we call it contemplation um, and then we just sort of need to figure out what we mean by that. But I think going back to your point about how the vision is a somehow a composing sort of vision, mm-hmm. that when you see things, you're in, you're combining and organizing in a way that's still given from other things in creation, 
right? So he says, you know, his first image is a natural image. At least maybe it's the first one. I'm not sure. But uh, before he does the cloth and the machine, he does the stars, right? He says that. Mm-hmm. The, uh, he says this is I. The mayflies refi- remind me of the stars. So he needs he needs to have seen the stars for him to be able to make that connection. So it's a sort of um, it's a vision that connects and intersects and does things like that. So it's a <clears throat> It's a kind of energetic sort of vision, and maybe it's contemplation, fine. But I would distinguish it against what we call kind of um, scientific vision, let's say, or something like that. Because in our minds, when we do science, it's very discreet. Things are clearly defined, or sort of supposedly univocal almost, in the sense of uh, they have velocities, they have placement, uh, they have, they, it's all neatly measured and quantifiable. He's doing none of that. He's showing very sort of organic, beautiful connections and things like that. So it's a different way of seeing, I guess. And it's more, it's, it's more, uh, yeah, first person, right? This is how I see it. This is the references, allusions, history that I'm bringing to this vision versus the scientific, which is a kind of all third person, all personality has been taken away from it. It's just quantities. Right. But the, uh, but the richness of, Wilbur's vision is sustained by the fact that what he sees can be true not only to his own first person, yeah. but to ours as well. And that yeah. uh, relies upon, though, ultimately, there being a creator, uh, there being an intellect, a mind, uh, a God who has invested natural things that everyone sees with their own meaning, with their own nature. So that when he sees stars or when he speaks about what he sees, he can trust that. We can know what he means because the uh, stars have a fixed nature. We know what they are. We can rely on that uh, because they were uh, created by God, that they have their ultimate root in a loving, creative mind, which is the mind of the Lord. So that uh, the danger, I think, in our society today is that we think that the only thing we can rely on is this uh, Kevin, you were talking about this third person, just the facts, cold, brute numbers, that in a sense, that's the only thing that we can know is definitely true. Um, but one that's, one that's cold, and it doesn't really help you. All it means is, that, okay, two and two is four. Have a nice day. Um, but that there's also, it's, just, it's not true that uh, there is uh, a creating mind. Yeah. Is there, so I want to, is there some kind of, are there analogies within nature? Is is Wilbur um, kind of grasping or bringing out implicit analogies between the movement of the stars? I almost said movement of the spheres there. The movement of the stars, um, the movement of mayflies, and the human activities of weaving, and then even further, the the activities of artificial creations, even of of the pistons of some bright machines. Is is there some way we can see say that there are natural analogies here uh, in in created things between created things? I, th- I mean, I think there's the, that Wilbur Wilbur sees throughout his corpus. Um, the poet's act as attempting to bring unity, a a greater unity, that is, 
between all created things. He thinks that that the poet, in in bringing together the movement of the stars and the actions of the mayflies and that of the weavers, he's bringing out a relationship or even recreating a relationship that had been severed uh, or is at least hidden to our eyes. So, I mean, I I think there is a, a way in which he either sees a unity, sees some relationship, some analogy there, uh, and simultaneously makes some analogy there, or or perhaps remakes uh, an analogy, uh, remakes a relationship that has maybe been severed by sin, severed by original sin. Uh, that, that's that's a topic that weaves through all of Wilbur's poems. Um, that the, the presence of original sin, and that the, the poet, in his activity is reconnecting uh, things that have been disconnected from one another. Yeah, I mean, my sense would be, I mean, you're exactly right. So it's, I guess it's a, one of those both-hand things because, <clears throat> I mean, if, oh my gosh, it's been so long since I read it, uh, mainly because of P- PTSD. But uh, in Plato's Philebus, uh, there's this discussion about sort of the kinship of all things under the good. Uh, that everything that's real, uh, everything that exists, is connected under the good, which is sort of the source of all being or something like that. Uh, so on the one hand, I would say, yeah, there's definitely natural analogy between all within, as it were, all of creation. Um, at the same time, and I think we can say this without going full Kantian, the human mind has to think in analogy, that we're always looking th- at things in sameness and difference. Um, and so I don't think we could think any other way, really. Uh, so yeah, you can have both of these things going would be my sense. So, uh, yes, there are natural analogies, but we also, and this is our natural mode of thinking. And I guess we would also add, and you also, I suppose, can compose some of your own, uh, not out of nothing, but because there are natural connections in creation. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the delight of, uh, oh, we could call it the poetic impulse, but that might, that sounds a little exclusive. I think we all experience this, that the, the delight of learning something or seeing something or realizing that, oh, wow, this is like that, or there's yeah. a real similarity in this experience I've had, and mm-hmm. there's a real thrill that comes mm-hmm. from uh, the discovery of it. Um, and in a sense, we have... Uh, an ownership of, of making that connection so that we could, some might say, Oh, I, I can, that we create that analogy, but I think it's better to say that we, uh, we discover it, witness it, yeah. experience yeah. it, um, and see it for ourselves there. And that's, uh, you know, whether or not we write that down in words, I think it's good to, uh, to think of ourselves as a uh, potential poets, everyone and that a, a poet is somebody who has his eyes open and happens to then uh, pay the sweat to write down what he saw, but that we all have the first half of the equation is that we have our eyes open to the world. And then the second part that uh, when someone becomes a poet, formally speaking, would be when they want to go through the truly difficult work of sitting down and thrashing out with pen and paper what it was they saw. Although we all have these experiences not all of us have the time or the inclination 
to really try to uh, write it down. I think I, um, I think that's great. And I think your phrase, having our eyes open to the world, is an interesting thing because again, this is this is a, a manner of speaking which we take something which we're always doing, and unless we're sleeping, we have our eyes open to the world. But but what's implied there is is something more, some kind of truer vision. And mm-hmm. I mean, I think this gestures towards a general sense of of contemplation. We we can see that in having our eyes open to the world, we're we're looking towards the world without designs and without desires, right? When, mm-hmm. when, when I have my eyes open to the dinner set on the table before me, um, my eyes are, you know, they, 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 my vision is kind of shaped by what I want. You know, this looks good to me. But I, I mean, I wonder if there's a, a certain way of, of having your eyes open to the world which um, embraces like a, a radical receptivity right no i think you're right that uh but the uh, what that requires of us is uh that that sort of receptivity is the status of a lifetime you could say it's not something you go out i'm going to go for a 15 minute walk and i'm going to have dog on it a poetic experience and then <laughs> i'm going to encapsulate it in words and that's that's sort of our mindset we have a very project oriented mindset that i'm going to go out and make this happen um and that's intrinsically frustrating because it doesn't work that way but what we're uh, the healthier and more the true mode to be in if you're going to really try to be a true contemplative spirit is to be open and patient uh, so that you are receptive to what the world what creation offers you but that you haven't set an agenda or a deadline for the time by which it must happen or else it doesn't happen. Uh, yeah. So I'm going to, I don't know if this is pushing back. Well, it is. That's that it is. Okay. Great, but this, is against, this is against Chris though. Oh, um, wonderful. Great. Excellent. <laughs> I mean, I thought I, he was wrong too. Uh, <laughs> no, I think it's exactly right to say you have no designs over the thing, but I'm no, I don't sure if that translates to no desires. Um, so it's, it's possible to say you're not, you, uh, your desire actually is that this thing be what it is and this thing reveal itself to be what it is and show itself to you. Um, and that allows you to attend to it, right? Because you actually care about it. Uh, rather than saying, I've got no desires. I mean, perception without any desire sounds weird to me. Or contemplation without desire sounds peculiar. No, I, I mean, uh, I agree. I'm, I'm thinking yeah. of, of kind of uh, productive Pur- purposes. Acts. Yeah, you yeah. know, I've, I've got a plan for this thing. Yeah, no, yeah. for that, yeah, for sure. That I agree with 100% has to go. Um, and to Jonas, one, I think it's really nice, this thing of you can't really have a plan for it because even the, the way the Wilbur poem begins... There's a contingency about it, right? It's a certain time of the day. He's walking around. These things just sort of pop out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he says the same thing with the stars. I mean, you can't plan when the clouds are going to part <laughs> and you see right. the, the dance of the stars behind them. You just have to be ready. Um, and the vision comes when the vision comes. Uh, so there's a kind of contingency. And I mean, let's, you can even push it for the providential aspect to the, you know, the, what the poet sees. Um, and, and, you know, just you can prepare yourself. You can want to see, but that might not be enough. <laughs> sure. Creation is given. We, we were yeah. speaking to that earlier. And, and in a sense, if it is given, 
Yes, yeah. we can't plan on yeah. on seeing it. Can't at a be taken. Time. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. I brought up contemplation earlier because that's that's a way that Hopkins approaches poetry. And Gerard Manley Hopkins, being one of our great Catholic poets, he he, in, in one of his notebooks, just straight out says that poetry is speech formed for contemplation of the mind. For um, or from is formed for contemplation of the mind. Okay. So, and, and here, this goes back to what you were saying earlier, Kevin. Um, he's, he's speaking, I think, more um, from the vantage of the reader rather than the writer, which uh, the emphasis on the writer that, that we saw in Wilbur, I, th- I think, is, is something characteristic of the 20th century. Hopkins is writing before the 20th century, he's writing in the 19th century. So I, I uh, think it's, um, that emphasis is, is not the emphasis on the writer isn't as evident. So poetry is speech formed for contemplation of the mind. And one, one thing he's bringing out there and brings out uh, further in his notebooks is that, you know, there's a certain physicality of poetry's rhythm, of its music, uh, that that provides for contemplation. It's, it's material that allows for contemplation in a certain sense, um, be that it may, he sees yeah, contemplation of the mind uh, at the heart of poetry. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that's that's interesting. Again, uh, what do we mean by contemplation? We're, we're kind of, just like with vision, we're using this in a few different ways. But one thing he brings out elsewhere, kind of parallel to his discussion of contemplation, is the discussion of relation, which which we've we've touched on a few times, but but I, I think he creates his own kind of vocabulary for this. He 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 speaks um, in his own idiosyncratic language um, when speaking about this subject, but it kind of translates to uh, certain kinds of experiences. Perhaps Wilbur's experience of mayflies. Um, certain kinds of certain acts of vision, I think we could call them, that further establish a relationship between the the person seeing and the and the object seen, and and that for Hopkins is is at the center of the poetic act. Um, that for Hopkins is at the center of the poetic act, and I think it gestures towards maybe something similar to what uh, Wilbur was uh, implying. Wilbur learned much from Hopkins. It's clear that um, that there are relationships here to be established, whether we're reestablishing them uh, after the sundering of, of original sin or whether we that's just part of being in the world is establishing these relationships between things. But, but Hopkins, in, a, in what I see as a rather radical way, sees the activity of poetry as establishing relationships with the things of the world. Uh, and I, I don't think that's a small point by any stretch of the imagination. If that was a question, this might be an answer, which is also a question. <laughs> uh, so just hearing you say that, um, and reminds me of something else you said earlier about how 
should we think of uh, contemplation along the lines of sort of receptivity? And what you said and the Wilbur stuff and something you said before is maybe we want to say responsiveness, that um, in a way, uh, the kind of contemplative vision is a responsive vision to something that's being shown to us, something being given to us. And we're being, and then going back to that Wilbur idea of being called and we're responding to that call. Uh, and so you, number one, you can't do this by yourself <laughs> because that's the nature of a response. Um, but you also want to be attentive and, and respond in a faithful way. Uh, and I think a lot of poets want to be somehow faithful to what's going on, right? Faithful to what they're seeing uh, and faithful in their craft to um, the vision or the thing contemplated. <laughs> Does that sound right? There we go. There's a question there. There's a the question. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think that's that's exactly right. Um, in some sense, yeah, the act of vision to see is to be summoned by that which gives itself to be seen. Um, yeah. Is, uh, the, the, the things around us call out to be seen. Again, this is speaking in, in, in a, a Hopkins vein. Which, which sees this in, in perhaps a more radical way than many people see it, um, that kind of phrasing. Um, he, he has elsewhere in his notebooks, he, he has a line, uh, what you look hard at seems to look hard at you. And I, I always found that puzzling. Um, but but I, I think it's, it speaks to, to kind of the radicality with which he approaches the subject uh, that, that we're discussing that um, the act of, of seeing requires some kind of responsiveness to, to the gift. And that these are uh, the little gifts, the gifts of uh, creatures, plants, shrubs, uh, other people. Um, when we see them and when they call out to us, they're not talking about themselves ultimately. Uh, this is one of St. Augustine's uh, insights that he, he went to say is that if you look at um, nature trees the ocean they speak of how we are beautiful and then they want to speak about who made them and that all of creation is calling out not just about themselves but they themselves are opportunities again for deeper vision back to the one who sees them and makes them and sees us and makes us such that um that's why you know contemplation is is a waiting that will not rest until it sees the one who saw it first, who saw us first. And then in the end, um, you know, there will be a time when, uh, when we will see him as he is, and that uh, the clouds will part, the veil will be lifted, and uh, we'll see him and be seen and, uh, and be changed. And in a sense, we'll fall silent, uh, because before that vision, there's nothing else to be said. But then also, uh, we will have become perfect praise. Because, uh, and of course, I'm speaking about, to be clear, I'm speaking about God and the yearning that each creature has to see God and be known by God and loved by God and ultimately on in heaven to see God as he is and to be known, but that we won't be entirely silent because to be in heaven means to be united to Jesus Christ, who is the word of the Father, the one word, the one perfect word that perfectly sums up what all of creation tries to say and 
fall short of, though it can say something. Uh, but it's, it's in the face of Jesus Christ that we both see the glory of God and can enter into, through him, an act of perfect praise of the Creator who calls all things into his wonderful light. No, I, that sounded like a homily at the end, but uh, that's kind of... Um, but I, 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 I think, I mean, that, that leads us um, to, to the point in which we began with, with uh, Joseph Pieper, the most essential goal of art is the praise of creation and, and, or the praise of the creator um, through mm-hmm. singing creation. Uh, through singing about creation. So we've been speaking very much in terms of vision, but we shouldn't let that, I don't, I don't think, prevent us from acknowledging that what we've been talking about, vision, uh, is an act of praise, is, is part, of, part of the way we praise God. Um, and I think Pieper says elsewhere that... Um, he, he ventures to say that that uh, this this uh, brings us to uh, an act of of love. Even um, you know, art uh, perhaps moves us into or is part of our act of love of the Creator, as as that act of praise. Yep. So perhaps that's a good good place to wrap up, Father Jonah, Kevin. Uh, I'd like to thank you both for for joining us this afternoon uh, for, for this wonderful discussion of poetry and creation. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this production of The Angelico Project Presents. If you would like to learn more about The Angelico Project or explore ways to get involved, please visit angelicoproject.org. Thank you for listening, and until next time, God bless.